Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about having joy at work. Now, before you think that I'm joking, who doesn't want more joy when you're at work? Seriously. And we all have to admit, before you think I've lost my mind, that at times, work does feel out of control and joy seems impossible. So we're going to take a page from the condo method. You know that method about tidying and about decluttering. But we're going to apply it to work. And we're going to talk about how this method makes a difference to joy to productivity, and even to a sense of purpose at work. And that means we're going to talk about declutter, yes, of course, but not just your papers in your desk. We're going to talk about decluttering your time, your decisions, your networks, your meetings, and even your digital life. I think you're going to find it's actually quite inspiring, even if you're one of those people that is not keen on tidying to begin with. So my guest today is Scott Sonnenschein. He's the Henry Gardner Simons Professor of Management at Rice University and is the New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into more than 20 languages. He's the author of Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined, and we talked about that about a year ago. He's also the co-author with Mary Kondo of Joy at Work, Organizing Your Professional Life. Now, Scott is also an award-winning researcher, teacher, and speaker who's helped Fortune 500 executives in about every industry you could name, technology, industry, healthcare, retail, education, banking, manufacturing, nonprofit. And his work is about change, creativity, personal growth, social issues, decision-making, and influence. I could say tons more. Scott's written for the New York Times, the Time Magazine, Company and Harvard Business Review, just to name a few. Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back on, Wanda. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. I, this is, um, you know, when I first read the title of this book, um, and I know the Marie Kondo method in general, the general principle behind it, and I thought, ooh, I don't know how this is going to go over. The more I look at this, the more I see how powerful the idea is. So let's get to your core message is about paring down to essentials. Now, why? Why does this topic matter to you in the end? There's a lot of waste at work in terms of what we're doing with our time, how we're interacting with people, and in a lot of our daily activities. And the sad truth is that Research shows that only 15% of people are actually engaged with their job. And the cost of this dissatisfying work is pretty severe psychologically. Anxiety, depression, lower self-esteem, and even physical illness. On top of that, businesses are wasting billions and billions of dollars a year just even on disorganized meetings. Some studies put that number at $400 billion a year on disorganized meetings. People can spend up to half of their days responding to email. And what the book is really about is teaching us that a lot of what we're doing isn't in service of our job. It's not in service of our organizations. And it's certainly not in service of our own well-being. So what we want to teach the reader to do is to focus on those activities and those items 
that give you, let's say, the, the biggest bang for your buck to make sure that you're focusing on what's most essential to get your job done, support your organization, and just as importantly, to feel great at work. Those sound like really important goals, this notion of stopping wasting our time and our effort and do better for ourselves as well. I have to quote a couple of um, stats that I have seen cited to you, and here are just a couple things that follow from that. According to one study, a typical office worker spends half of his or her day dealing with emails. You just said that. Half of their time dealing with emails. I cannot believe that's productive. There's an average of 199 unopened emails in the inbox on any given day. And as you go up the ladder, I think it gets even more. That 96% of employees feel they're wasting their time with unnecessary emails. And then you go on to say a third of the programs on our computers that are installed are never used. And it goes on and on and on and on. And over 400 billion lost in the U.S. alone on um, wasted meetings, ineffective meetings. So that's important. Now, make the connection for me. You wrote Stretch which is about the power of less, which is how do you use fewer resources to actually make yourself better? And how is that tied to this notion of joy at work? So stretch is about how we can be more resourceful in work and life, how we can solve problems when we're facing constraints and we're dealing with less. And that's certainly something that's on a lot of people's minds right now in the in the situation that we're dealing with with the pandemic. So with with joy at work, we wanted to go kind of the, the next step and think about um, some people find themselves with a lot of excess at work. They have a lot of uh, extra meetings or maybe they think that they have to build out the biggest network to be successful or they need to grow the biggest teams in order to have the most status or be successful at work or have a fulfilling career. What we're trying to message to the reader is that there's actually quite a lot of, of, of power in less, which is you know, what I was doing in stretch. But then what are some of the techniques you can do to kind of take things uh, that are excess and really boil them down to the most important aspects of what you're doing at work. So this is kind of a, a way of, of helping helping you get to that, that less that you can then use to your advantage to be able to solve problems in a more effective manner. Okay. So I could subtitle this with get down to less, but the less is the core essentials of what really matters. And we're back to where we started from this from. Okay, so let's talk about the method for a little bit, because now I'm intrigued. You said this is about how, and I want to know how. So the condo method is about eliminating clutter. So how does this work? Just kind of give me a sense of how this all works, and how does that spark joy or even greater productivity? Right. So Marie's, Marie's method has primarily focused on, on physical items, and there's you know, also a, a physical part of, of, of work in terms of the items you might have on your desk or in your office and so on. But the book goes a lot further than, than that in expanding clutter to not just the physical category, but also digital and activity clutter. And all three of those play a part in this puzzle. So starting with physical clutter, we, what we've learned from the research is that for many people, being in the presence of physical clutter increases our stress. It triggers the stress hormone cortisol. 
makes us moody. That's not a very good environment to be doing productive work in. On the digital side, we have fully cluttered email inboxes that feel overwhelming. We get nagged by notifications that can take as much as 26 minutes to get back to where we left off of. We start our days staring at our computer screens that might have a desktop where we can't even read the file names because they're so cluttered. It's just, it's not a very good way of, of kicking off the day. And then there's activity clutter. These are doing things that don't matter, but they burn us out and frustrate us. These are turning in reports that no one wants to read or compiling, compiling uh, research or information that's not informing the decision-making process or having a meeting just because we've always had that meeting at that date, at that time, and with these people, even if it's not leading to any productive discussion or important decision. All three of these conspire to make work less productive because they take us away from what's most essential to get done. They also take away our happiness and our joy at work, which takes away and saps away at our motivation. So what we're trying to do in the book is to, by boiling things down to what's most important and what's most essential, it not only makes us more productive because we're not wasting our time, but it's, it also puts us in a better headspace where we can feel motivated and enjoy being at work more. Okay. All right. I buy that. And I am certain everybody listening to that believes that if they could eliminate some of this clutter, particularly the activity clutter, that there would be a lot more time at work and a lot more of engagement and satisfaction and certainly productivity. But I have senior management sitting or more senior management sitting somewhere who seem to be calling the shots on what I'm going to do or not to do, how do I navigate through that mess in order to make sure that I'm doing what really matters and I'm getting to the essentials? Well, at, at work, things are obviously complicated by the fact that most of us, if not all of us, have someone that we're accountable to, whether it's our supervisor or boss, board of directors, Whoever that, whoever that might be. So we're not working in a vacuum. And we try and lay out a very clear set of arguments about why you can't just decide, you know what, my boss no longer sparks joy or this activity that's part of my job no longer sparks joy. I'm done with it. Just forget about it. Uh, what we do is we go through a different set of criteria about how to think about all of the things that you're doing. And there are some things that all of us might need to do that we, we might not enjoy at work. But that doesn't mean that we don't have any power over the situation. And this is one of the things that I've observed in not just my research, but my teaching in, you know, with MBA students for almost 15 years now, which is we tend to underestimate how much we can shape our environment. So if we can dialogue with the people uh, who are accountable to our supervisors and, and so on and try and explain to them why, for example, we might not be the most relevant person to go to this meeting or why this decision that we're making might not be the best uh, approach to it or what the trade-off is by spending time on this activity versus that activity is. And we can dialogue and back that up with, with data and kind of a clear case about what that alternative scenario looks like, we can be more effective at trying to influence and shape our job. What tends to happen is people 
just assume that they have no control over the situation as opposed to trying to change that situation. And once you, once you assume that you, you lack that control and you lack that agency, and if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're going to kind of spiral out of control where motivation is going to erode over time and your work performance might also suffer. And that might even give you less control as your supervisor detects that things aren't going so well and perhaps maybe micromanages you even more. So we can proactively have that discussion and do it in a way that's respectful that the organization and your supervisor have their goals too. And sometimes those might be in conflict with what you want, but to still have that dialogue and kind of explain where you're coming from and what the trade-offs are and how it could be in the interest of the organization that you spend your time on one thing versus the other thing, you can be more effective in both your job as well as boost your well-being. Right. I like that idea that you have a conversation about it um, and that you structure that conversation very carefully, that you don't just walk in and say, I don't want to do this anymore, that you actually sort of assemble your explanation and your data and your facts and your rationale and your alternatives and you present your case. But I also like another thing in there that you said, this notion that we don't just assume we can't do that we try to change because it gives us some degree of agency. And the reason I think the agency is so important, meaning the ability to take an action, even if it's a small one, is because that is heart and soul of being able to build resilience. So if you can't get agency, you're going to have a hard time getting resilience. So double argument for why this is important. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's absolutely right. And the other thing that people need to keep in mind is that Change often doesn't come from big change. The impact of small actions is what drives a lot of changes inside organizations. So we're not talking about massive things that you need to do, but short conversations can make the world of difference for both the quality of your work and the quality of your life. Okay. It's amazing what a little tiny action can do if you just one step, one step, one step. Okay, now I got to take one more counter view before I'm going to be bought in hook, line, and sinker. I am thinking of two particular individuals that I worked fairly closely with for a bunch of years who believe that piles of paper on the floor, on the desk, on every known surface is an effective way to work. For them, the piles had meaning and they had organization and it was their way of making sure they kept track of everything. Now, what's your response to that? Is that a, <laughs> do you buy that argument or are they missing an opportunity? Well, first of all, I, I've, I've been there before because my office probably used to look worse than theirs. So I, I, understand, I understand the perspective that they're, they're, they're coming from. And for me, it was not just paperwork, but I had just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of books, many I hadn't touched for, for decades. So I, I understand that. And I think that people, people get comfortable with, with a certain system and they feel that it works. And you know what, what we're talking about are, are, you know, like any social science, we're talking about typical people and averages. So there are going yeah. to be people out there who I would call outliers who, you know, that, that works for them and it gen- genuinely works for them. And that's, and that's great. And uh, I still think there's something to be said about the message in our book in terms of activity clutter and, and digital clutter. But I get that there, there might be some people who just, you know, they have their system on the physical side and, and that's fine. But what I've also learned is that there are people who hide under their physical clutter because they don't want to confront, um, 
you know, problems or challenges that they're, they're having at work. So, for example, by making my desk look super cluttered, I look super busy. And the challenge mm-hmm. that I might be having is I might not be confident in my contribution to work, and I feel like I need to hide behind my physical clutter as a way of signaling to everyone that says, I'm super busy. So there are, there are ways that we use this physical clutter to kind of mask trying to tackle some of our darkest challenges that we might be having. So I think that, mm-hmm. you know, we need to separate the people who are saying physical clutter is my organization system and I, I love it versus I'm using this as a way of, of hiding from something, from something else. Yeah. 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 From doing the work I really need to do. I coached someone for a while who had multiple screens and they were all and a bunch of papers and a lot of stuff stacked around uh, that person. And in effect, what it did was make it hard to see the individual when you walked in the office. Like you had to go out of your way in an awkward way to make eye contact because there was so much in the way. I think the signal, I don't know where the intention was there or not, but the signal to the person coming to the office was very clear. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. And if you're trying to raise your visibility and profile, that didn't work ter- terribly well. So I get your point of what are we avoiding with the clutter. Okay. I want to move and away from talking. enough, the, I was going to say, the, the research actually shows that uh, people who have physically cluttered offices tend to be judged by other people as less competent. So you might be trying to hide and, and look busy or whatever it is that you're, you're running away from, but the signals that you're sending to other people, in your case, it was, I don't want to engage with you. But in the, in the studies that I've, I've looked at, it's also, I'm not competent when you have all of that clutter around. Okay. Indeed. All right. Fair enough. So let's move away from the decluttering of paper and desktops. And I want to talk about decluttering digital life. And I think this is the one I want to start with. And then I want to move on to the sort of activity clutter. But what's your point of view about decluttering digital life? And how do we go about doing this? So this digital life is one of the things where we spend so much time on that it, it ends up impacting our days even outside of our digital area. So it's, that's why it's really important to, to tackle. And there's, there's a number of different ways that, that we go about doing this. The first and most obvious one is to think about our emails because it's such a big time suck at work. And there's different ways that people develop systems. There's people who never touch their inbox and their, their inbox is their entire email. And it's just, one giant repository. And if they've been working at a place for longer than a year, I mean, nothing is just completely out of control. Then there's the people who will kind of periodically, they'll go through this phase where they have a bunch of clutter and then they wake up one day and they look at their screen and it's an infinite scroll of lots and lots of messages. And they're like, I've just had enough of this. I'm going to just clean this thing out and they'll just start massively deleting stuff, hopefully not deleting anything important, but that does happen, and then have a fresh start. And then the challenge is, three months later, they're in the same exact position because they haven't developed a system to keep their inbox super, super tidy. And then there's uh, the, third, the third group of people who basically are glued to email. And they get a message, and they're going to process it right away and do whatever with it, 
but as soon as something comes in, they're going to take care of it. And that's also troubling because, as I mentioned before, what the science teaches us is it takes up to 26 minutes for the brain to recover when it gets distracted with a notification such as an email to go back to where you were. So they're constantly being interrupted in their workflow by trying to maintain an email system. So what we advocate is to keep things relatively simple, utilize the search function when you can, and store your emails in up to 10 different folders. You go more than 10 folders and you end up with cognitive overload in terms of thinking about where to put the message and where to actually retrieve, retrieve the message. And sitting down and batching email a couple of times a day versus always being glued and attached to the email or just letting things just stay in your inbox. So that's, um, that's email. Okay. Phones are another... Phone, do you want to talk about phones? No, I want to talk about email for a minute. If there's up to 10 folders, do you have a formula on the 10 folders? Uh, so I, I think we, we try not to be too prescriptive in terms of what those, what those 10 folders are. Uh, we recommend some techniques like to have a, uh, a folder and subfolder for each of the core projects that you're working on. You can have mm-hmm. a folder for keeping records. Uh, sometimes we need to archive conversations for a variety of reasons. If you also do your personal email, on your work email, you're going to want to have a personal folder to, to segment that, those off. Search function has come a long way, uh, not just with online systems like Google, but also within, within Outlook and the Apple system as well on mail. So searching within a folder usually gets, gets you what you want. But if you start to just keep everything in one place, for example, you might be trying to look for the PowerPoint deck that you presented to a client a couple of weeks ago and end up getting a lot of hits about the new deck that you installed outside your house. So we do want okay. some kind of cordoning off of different messages in these 10 folders. It also allows okay. you to go back and look at a historical record by date that way. So when you do it by project, we recommend that. Um, okay. But, you know, email, what the, what the research teaches us, email people are so tied to their email system, even when you give them mounds of evidence about what system is more effective than another, they're really hard-pressed to change. So our advice is to try and keep things simple. If you've become accustomed to having a certain type of folder, that's okay. We're not so totalitarian about what the names of the folders are. We just recommend what's worked for us. Uh, But we're more flexible here than, let's say, in other categories of clutter. Okay. All right. Fabulous. All right. So you want to talk about phones and apps, I'm assuming. Well, yeah. I mean, the the thing with phones is that the way that they're designed is they are just attention suckers. And what people don't realize as much is that, you know, it's it's just going to take five seconds to respond to this message. Let me just get it out of the way. But again, what it does to the brain and the thought process and your train of thought is far more damaging than those five seconds. So the more apps that we put on our phone, and we tend to put a couple more apps on our phone each month than we delete, so our phones are constantly getting filled up with more and more apps. What that does is it's giving us more notifications. So it's going to keep ringing or nagging at us in different ways, chirping at us, beeping at us until we give it the attention that it needs. So if we can get our phone tidy and organized to the apps that we really still use and that really truly bring us joy and the fewer the better there 
we're going to have less moments of, of distraction. And then, of course, if we can put away our phones to the extent that we, we could get away in our work and at least have some space, even if it's only an hour of, of phone-free thinking process, the typical manager has almost no uninterrupted time blocks. I think it's about 30 minutes uh, every uh, day and a half of uninterrupted time blocks to actually think. It's hard to really do planning and strategy and big picture thinking when we're constantly being pulled in lots of different directions and our phones and our attachment to them is one of the reasons why that's so hard now. Yeah. But boy, is it hard to give it up. You know, the thought that you might put that phone down for 30 minutes and not look at it is just unbelievable to an awful lot of people I work with. I love that stat. The typical manager has 30 minutes every other day that's uninterrupted. I don't know how you get work done, let alone how you think and plan and create visions and inspire and all the other stuff that we want to see people doing. Okay. Um, well, Go ahead. I was going to say, you, you don't. And that's, that's, that's part of the problem is that we're focusing on small problems that are, that are urgent, but not necessarily the most important problem. Okay. So what we're talking about here is looking at the things that are cluttering our attention, if you will. The things that are on our desk, the things that are on our emails, the things that are on our phone, the things that are on our desktops, all of those things that distract our attention. And we know with every distraction, you lose on average 26 minutes of productive time. And so just that is going to help free some stress levels and free some mental thinking space, right? Are there other ways in which that kind of activity creates joy? Absolutely, because what we're, what we're doing when we're focusing on keeping those things that are either most important for our work or that bring us the most joy, we're going through an active agency process itself. So we're being more intentional with what we have and what we're doing at work. And that's one of, I think, the, the beauties of, of this notion of focusing on what to keep as opposed to um, deciding what to, what to discard is that we are intertwining our own intentionality with what we have and what we do day in and day out. And that puts us in a more joyful headspace because we know that we've made a lot of active choices about how we're spending our time. Right. Scott, you just made a connection for me because I have been talking to so many people who are frustrated with their loss of control in the current moment in time. And I keep reminding people that it was an illusion in the first place that you had control. But what all the advice has been for people who like more control is to think about the ways in the small actions that you can take, the things that are actually under your control. And what you just outlined in terms of emails, in terms of the apps on our phones, in terms of the clutter on our desktops, laptops, and so on, is totally 100% under my control as an individual. And so I can be intentional. I can take some small degree of control, and I can be, I can have agency accordingly. That has to be good for everyone. Absolutely. Because, again, you know, depending on where you are in the organization, there's going to be a lot that is out of your control, and that's a very difficult place for people to be. Feeling in control and, and, and having that sense of control is one of the most fundamental human motivations, and that could be really hard to 
experience at work. But the things that we've been talking about are small things, they're pretty simple things, and they're open to just about everyone. I love it. I love it. Okay, this is a perfect moment for a break. My guest today is Scott Sonnenschein. He's at Rice University, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. Well, the book we've been talking about is Joy at Work, co-authored with Marie Kondo, Organizing Your Professional Life. When we come back, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk particularly about the other two big sinks of time, which is how do I get more decluttering of my time and of my meetings and then we'll move on to decisions and teams if we have a moment we'll be right back when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are, at home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. I'm with Scott Sonnenschein today, and we're talking about Joy at Work, Organizing Your Professional Life. It's a book co-authored with Marie Kondo, using the Kondo method in general, but applying it to work. And the principles here are ways in which we have so many things that are distracting our brains, and every single distraction costs us, we know on average, 26 minutes of predictive time. If you add up all of those interruptions, distractions, dings on your phone or your email or your computer, it's a huge amount of time that you could get control over. And the nice piece of that is this: a lot of this you have control over at a micro level, perhaps not at a macro level, but at a micro level, you certainly can control parts of it. So I think this is exciting. I also think it's exciting because if you happen to aspire to take on larger roles, you have to get better and better and better at managing more and more and more and more. And that means you have to master these techniques now because they become critical 
when the scope of your responsibility increases. So it's important to do it now. Now, Scott has talked about um, decluttering, and we talked about paper in your your physical space, but we were also talking about decluttering your digital space, emails and computers and phones. I want to talk about decluttering activity, particularly time and meetings. Scott, these have to be the biggest complaints I get from everybody I talk to. So walk us through how do we think about time and how do we think about meetings? So I I think if you talk to people who are not happy at work, they're going to say, I would, I would love my job if I only had the time to do it. And what I think they mean by that is that there's a lot of extraneous things that are not helpful for their job that they feel that they, they need to do. And so the first thing that we want to focus on when it comes time to tidying our time is to make sure that we're not contributing to the problem. And this actually will get us uh, quite, quite far. So there's a couple of traps that people fall into that makes them not spend their time as wisely as they could. So the first is what we call the, the over-earning trap. And what this is, is it means putting in a lot of effort to try and earn a reward or achieve a goal that doesn't really matter to us. And that's hard because what happens is we get driven by social comparisons, we you know, make comparisons to other, other people or even other organizations, and it makes us go ahead and, and chase after a goal or a reward that even when we get, we're actually not happy with. And it's all about just trying to, just trying to earn, earn the reward or achieve the goal, even if the reward and the goal really don't make an impact. So I think the first thing is to be mindful of where we're directing our efforts towards. The second, which we briefly alluded to earlier in the show, is the urgency trap, which is to focus on on activities that are urgent but not important. And at work, one of the challenges that I find that people regularly have is people are always coming to them with a deadline, and they're like, "You know, I need this in three days." And there's actually a lot of a lot of that that urgency is is artificial when you kind of step back and ask, well, you know, why does it actually need to be done in three days? What is the what's the timeline for that? Because what happens is when we put down what we're actually working on to respond to a request that's urgent but not important, we have to you know again compartmentalize our brains and we you know there's a big cost in terms of switching from task to task. So what we want to do is we want to make a distinction between things that are urgent and things that are important. And the things that really deserve our time and attention are the urgent and important ones. And then the third mistake that I think really uh, gets, gets people is, is multitasking. Because what happens is people begin to feel so stressed out over having so much to do. They think that multitasking is this great panacea that's going to suddenly solve all of their problems. But what the science teaches us is that multitasking actually reduces productivity by upwards of 40%. And the people who tend to be more prone, yeah, 40 by 40%. So the thing that's supposed to be saving us time, saving saving us time is actually costing us time. And the the explanation for that is is pretty simple. Again, it's it's a switching cost. There is no, the, the brain does not have kind of multiple processors like a, like a computer might. So we can't simultaneously do two things at once. What happens is we switch from task to task very rapidly, so much so that we might think we're doing two things at once, but we're not actually. And it's those switching costs that tend to eat 
at our, our productivity. So the first thing is, you know, realize that these are, these are traps that really uh, get people into, into trouble because it, it, it hurts the way that they, they spend their time. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to really try and do a, a diagnosis, a diagnosis of, of how you're spending your time. So in, in Marie's method, she talks about, you know, kind of bringing a, a pile of, let's say, clothes is a big one in, in, in what she talks about and putting it all in one place and seeing what you have and then going through each item and asking, does it, does it spark joy? Well, for time, that looks a little different, but there's a, a very similar type of architecture, which is we do so many things at work that we don't have a full accounting of how we're spending our time. So what we recommend is to make a task pile. So kind of the equivalent of that pile of clothes on your bed, you need a pile of tasks about how you've spent your time in, let's say, the last week. And you write down each task, and you can put it into different piles in terms of what types of tasks they are. Are they project tasks? Are they tasks that are for your own self-development and personal growth? You can evaluate the task and, and ask, you know, is this something um, that's necessary for my job? And the reality is, is you've got to keep those. Is this something that's helpful for bringing about a joyful future that I want? Learning something new, getting a promotion that I might want, whatever that might be. Those tasks are also worth keeping. And then the third set is, is this task just simply joyful? Are these things that I really enjoy doing in my in my job, and those are also keepers. Everything else uh, we want to work to discard because they're not, they're not essential for our job, they're not bringing about the future career or work that we want, and they're not joyful. And what we find is that there's a good chunk of tasks that fit into this category. So this diagnosis is really about holding up a mirror and saying, okay, it's, it's really easy to kind of forget about all of the different things we're doing, but take a look and see, this is the job that you have. It might be different than the job you thought you were taking. It might be different than your job descriptions, but what do you think of it once we've kind of peeled away all of the different layers and you kind of look at it? And if you find that a lot of the tasks that you're spending your time on are things that are simply just required for the job. They are not things that are part of the future plans that you have or things that bring inherent joy, that's a signal too in terms of, you know, maybe you want to make some changes in terms of, uh, you know, having a conversation about your role or thinking about the tasks you're doing or looking for ways of picking up tasks that you find more inherently joyful. If you go through this exercise and you find that, you know what, it turns out about half of the things that I'm doing, I don't actually need to be doing. I don't want to be doing for my future and they're certainly not joyful to be doing. That's also a, an, an interesting signal too, because it, it tells you that there's a lot of excess in how you're, uh, you know, what you're doing in terms of your activities, and there's room for you to pare some of that down, and then maybe pick up things that fit into one of those three other buckets about being essential, about a joyful future, or about just being inherently joyful. I love that. So things that bring about a future that you want. Some of those, they take many different forms. It can be about growth, but it can also be about building the network or the sponsorship or whatever. You just have to be clear that this task is doing that, that it's necessary for my job, and that I just enjoy. Three great questions for that one. Okay, I can't imagine that a manager would not be open to hearing a well-thought-out debate about eliminating work that was not essential, um, do you have any advice about how to go about having that conversation? Yeah. So the, the first is 
explanations go such a long way. And there's even social science that shows that a a nonsensical explanation is almost as good as a really well thought out explanation. (laughs) And I think what those studies really point to is that the brain just wants to hear a why. So it's not about going into the boss and saying, you know, these 10 things, I just don't want to do them anymore. It's about coming in with evidence and data and providing an, an explanation. So that's, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is a lot of times we end up taking on projects because we think they're going to be important or we think they're going to bring a lot of joy and we get caught up in the moment when someone asks. So there's more freedom than people have and they realize to be able to just take a little time to think about whether or not they want to take on a project. If it's, you know, if it's one of these things that say, hey, we have this opportunity, does anyone want to do it? Kind of just not be so fast to say yes and to think about it. And what the research tells us is that when we take just a little time and say, hey, can I get back to you tomorrow? It empowers us to actually say no so we can make room to say yes for those things that are going to have a greater impact. Yeah. Yeah. I think people who do brilliantly well with their careers are really good at that. They're very careful at knowing which things to pick up, which things are going to really matter. They're going to really make a difference either to the work that they're doing or to them and to their personal growth. I think that's brilliant advice. I I also sometimes... So much, I just want to, if I could just say... Yeah. If I can just add just one, one other point there is I think people yeah. are reluctant and they feel like they have to say yes to every single opportunity. And I think it's just important for people to realize is that when you're saying no, you're making the space to say yes for those things that have a greater impact. Yeah. Yeah. And not assume that that's the last thing that's going to come down the pike. There will be other things coming along the way. Um Sometimes I say to people, Scott, and I want your advice on whether I'm giving good advice or bad advice, is that some tasks you end up realizing you need to do, and it's hard to see how they fit in either personal growth or a huge necessity or for you enjoy them. And I always advocate then minimize the time you spend on them, like constrain it to X minutes in a day or X minutes in a week and get it done and kind of like this, move it through, but not spend a whole bunch of energy on it. What's your advice on that one? Yeah, there, there are just going to be, it's just a, a fact of, of most people's jobs that there are going to be things that we don't want to be doing that are just a part of our jobs. And we want to think about our jobs as a, as a portfolio and not get so hung up on one or two things that we don't enjoy doing. It's, I think it's, it's great to just kind of barrel through those and think about once you get through those, you're going to have the space to then do the things that you really want to be doing. Right. Right. And it's that, also that notion of, you know, once I decide to get my mind to it and I get settled down and I do it and I kind of stop fussing around, it actually doesn't take all that long for some of them. Okay, let's go to my favorite of all time topic. We have lost all discipline in how we run meetings. I can't believe how much time we're wasting in meetings. And you said over 400 billion, I think, wasted of productivity in meetings. How do we get on top of meetings? Right. So there's, there's, there's two uh, ways of, of thinking about this. The first is for those people who are organizing meetings. And these aren't just people who have managerial roles. These are people who might be organizing an ad hoc meeting or they're on a, a committee and they're, they're helping out with that. So I, I think it really starts by kind of making sure you're really mindful of what it is that you're trying to accomplish during the meeting. And that's 
That, that's actually a harder question to answer than I think a lot of people realize, because it's not just the, 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 the goal that you're trying to get in terms of, are we trying to make a decision here? Are we trying to disseminate information? Are we trying to generate new ideas? But it's also intertwined with people's own career objectives, because a lot of people, I think, wrongly use meetings as a platform to very narrowly advance their own career interests, and that ends up going, going wrong um, often in the long term and, and also in the, in the short term where we think that we're just going to invite as many people as possible to the meeting because it's going to make us look really important to have such a large group there or it's going to elevate the stature of the, of the meeting or of ourselves. So I think it's, it's important to, to think, well, the, the meeting is there to serve a purpose and it's there to serve the purpose of uh, either decision that we're trying to make or the people who we are actually inviting to the meeting. So once we've got that set of what we're trying to accomplish, that's when we can then start to figure out who are the right people to invite. And the quick rule there is the fewer people, usually the better. Once we get over 10, what the research teaches us is that meetings uh, take a take a down, downward trajectory. It's, it's hard for people to feel like they have the space to be able to get their ideas across. You get other types of problems with uh, some people feeling like there's others in the room and they're going to be participating. You get on a lot of tangents. The meetings become disorganized uh, pretty quickly. Then you want to make sure that you, you send out an agenda. And by an agenda, I don't mean, you know, here's, here's one, one bullet point of what we're going to be doing, but kind of a focused agenda that says, I thought about it, and this is what we're trying to accomplish. These are the, the six different things that we're going to try to accomplish. You can solicit feedback in terms of other other things people might want to add, but to, to show that you've kind of taken this seriously because, you know, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been to meetings before as an attendee and you show up, there's no agenda, the meeting organizer shows up five minutes late and really the whole thing just uh, never never begins um, on time and with, uh, with a clear purpose. And that message that sends to people is, I don't value your time. And that begins to erode at an organization's meeting culture. We want to encourage participation. Your goal of the meeting isn't to talk the most. It's usually to actually listen the most. And that's a, that's, a, that's a tough thing for leaders sometimes because they feel like, you know, they're the ones who need to have the, the vision and they're the ones who want to be impressing, impressing everyone. But uh, listening is, is the most critical thing. You've invited people, presumably because you want to get their, their input on things or you want to make a, a decision and, and get, their, get their input. Uh, if you're running a meeting as simply a way to inform people of something, there's better ways to do that. That could be a, an email that people can read in five minutes or even a short video you can send that they can listen to on their own time. So meetings should really be focused on decision-making or generating, generating ideas. Keep the meeting short. I mean, more than an hour. I mean, our time spans are decreasing each year in terms of uh, how we're just socially conditioned with with media and, and stuff, so 60 minutes is probably pushing it anyway, but certainly you go more than 60 minutes and you are going to, to lose people. And then kind of have a recap at the end where you summarize what you heard or you can confirm what was decided, uh, validate what was committed to, and, and so on, to kind of give people a sense of we accomplished something. Okay. If you're an attendee coming to a meeting, um, don't think that just because you're not formally in charge, you can't make a difference. Meetings you're at, you've probably been at meetings where they get off track. 
that's where you can kind of let your leadership emerge by helping them get back on track by redirecting the conversation. Certainly, you want to be prepared. If a leader sent out the agenda of what the meeting is, make sure you spend a little time to, to be prepared for that meeting. Now, by the way, those phones, I mean, how many times do you see people trying to yeah. multitask and uh, uh they can't hear what's happening in the conversation. If you've got more important work to be there, talk to the, the meeting organizer and let them know that maybe this meeting isn't, isn't the best fit for you. Here might be someone who has more knowledge about it. Uh, here's the trade-off. If I go, I can't get this other thing done. Uh, but to go there and, and not fully be engaged is a disservice to both you and everyone else in the room. I just have to plug that one for a minute. Paul Extel, who does some fabulous work on meetings, when he looks at the highest performing teams, we're talking about the dream teams in the world, there is 100%, 100% attention in the middle of the meeting, meaning no one is looking at their phones or at their laptops or anything other than focused on each other in the conversation. If that's what it takes to get to be maximally efficient, effective as a team, boy, do we have a long ways to go. So I just underscore how important that point is. Either engage or decide whether you need to be there in the first place. Okay. Are there, so we have advice if I'm organizing the meeting, some generally strong principles like being really, really mindful of what I want to accomplish in this meeting, not in the whole project, making sure I have the right number of people, lesser being better, get a focused agenda so other people can prepare, know what to do about it, listen a lot, and then do a recap at the end so we know what you heard, what decisions and actions are going to be taken, and validate with the points of view that were there. We also have actions if you're an attendee. Is there anything else we need to be mindful of in making sure we find joy through our meetings? So I think one other thing I would add is to avoid meeting FOMO. And I think a lot of people judge the value of their work by the meetings or the portfolio of meetings that they go to. And, you know, I go to these five meetings. That means I'm really important and I'm, I'm really visible. And then they want to go because they're fearful of, you know, if they're not going, you know, all of a sudden the big decision is going to be made and they're either not going to have input or it won't look like they participated in, in the decision. So I think, I think it's important for people to realize is that meetings are just one tool for working and that the way that most organizations run meetings are really just big time sucks that don't actually uh, make the most use out of anyone's time. So you could be asking, well, what other ways could I make contributions that would have a bigger impact? And there's lots of other ways that don't happen in meetings. So don't don't be uh, beat yourself up, first of all, if, if you aren't being invited uh, to some of these meetings. Uh, that might be a, a blessing in disguise if, it, if you can use that time in more productive and impactful ways. Yeah. Boy, and every one of my clients, I think we need to plaster it on their walls. We need to put it almost as a tattoo on our foreheads to remind ourselves because people I see are so anxious about being in the meeting, even if they know getting 15, 20 people in a meeting is completely ineffective. But still, there's pressure on doing it. Okay, Scott, we've got just a couple minutes left, and we have tons more that we could talk about. Um whether that's decision-making or our networks or our teams. So what are the last couple of points you would want to leave people with? Well, I I think that um, it's important that we create a culture 
uh, and everyone has this responsibility, not just, not just, not just leaders in ways that can bring joy to everyone. And one of the things that I think is most essential for this is really to just treasure your, your coworkers and express their gratitude. One of the most eye-opening studies I came across in researching the book is that uh, expressing gratitude uh, is a triple win. It makes the person receiving that expression more motivated and feel better. Um, it's good for the company because uh, that person is, is working harder. And it also makes us feel better when we express that gratitude. Yet on a given day, only 10% of employees are actually expressing gratitude to someone else at work. So these are small things that could have such a big impact on our well-being. So I think that's, that's really important is to, is to you know, treasure, treasure the people we're, we're working with. Uh, I think uh, showing care for the workplace is really important, and that care could be both in terms of what we're doing physically, so not, you know, when we return to an office setting, uh, not leaving a dish in the sink on the physical side, but in a meeting too, it might also be the way that we interact with people, how we can assume the best in them, how we can trust them. Because what we see in the research is that small messes can often spiral out of control into really big messes. So we want to make sure that we're doing the small things right, and that's going to gradually change a culture and make it a more joyful place for all of us. Great. That's very, um, very interesting advice, and I think a pretty powerful one as well. This notion of small messes can spiral out of control and then not let those small bad behaviors kind of escalate in any way. I also love this idea that we express gratitude for our coworkers every day. That's fabulous. All right, Scott, um, I have literally one minute to do this. I've been asking everybody, how do you, when was the time you had to get out of your comfort zone? And most importantly, what was the secret to your success? You got like 30 seconds to tell me the secret to getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah, well, I'd say writing this book was pretty much out of my comfort zone, working with someone uh, from a, a different culture, a different language. We, you know, she speaks Japanese, I speak English, a completely different professional background. So for me, I focused on all of the things I can learn versus all of the effort in trying to make the collaboration work. I love that. Focus on all the things I can learn versus the effort that's involved. Okay, Scott, what a joyful, I will say, um, insightful segment for me, and particularly in this notion that there's so many ways we have agency over the little things that happen at work. And if we take agency over those, then we're going to feel more joy plus be more productive. So, Scott, thank you for being a guest today. Thanks so much again, Wanda. I really appreciated it. All right. And the book is Joy at Work, Organizing Your Professional Life. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.